All right. Good morning, everyone. They always tell you uh, when you're in Bible college or seminary that if you are preaching in front of a thousand or preaching in front of one, you're supposed to do it the exact same way. That sounds good in theory until, well, you're only in front of one person. But we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 12 with just one person here, but hopefully it will still be as beneficial in the teaching. So Jeremiah chapter 12, we're supposed to be trying to finish the entire book of Jeremiah by the end of the summer. Obviously, we are way, 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 way behind, but we're going to do what we can. We started Jeremiah chapter 12, and we read a paragraph in the Bible study guide, and I'm going to read that paragraph because then it led us away from Jeremiah chapter 12 for like two hours uh, of teaching. Jeremiah chapter 12, we read this paragraph. Traditional wedding vows often include, will you, forsaking all others, be faithful as long as you both shall live. It is a promise of singular and exclusive devotion. It is no surprise that in both the Old Testament and New Testament, the covenant of marriage describes God's relationship to Israel and Christ's relationship to his church. When a person is saved by grace through faith in Christ, the individual enters into a covenant that calls for a singular and exclusive devotion to the Lord. Now, when we read that, we first of all kind of challenged, wait a minute, does the new covenant say that I have to pursue a singular and ex- exclusive devotion to the Lord? Is that language of the new covenant? Or is the new covenant about what Christ did for me, not what I'm supposed to do for Christ? So we went on a long journey looking up all the passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament about the new covenant. We found that a lot of things said about the new covenant in most churches don't really read true when we're looking at the scriptures. So we challenged that. So that means we never actually got to chapter 12. So today we're going to kind of, we're going to kind of approach it for the first hour. We're just going to kind of work through Jeremiah chapter 12 utilizing some different resources to see how they outline it, see if we can get kind of a basic idea of what's in chapter 12, maybe deal with certain issues, and then hopefully in the next hour we can work on Jeremiah chapter 13. But in the Bible study guide, before they actually start working on Jeremiah chapter 12, they have a page called Understand the Context, which tries to review what they're claiming, reviews Jeremiah 11.1, to Jeremiah 17, verse 27. So I thought this would add some context and help us kind of get back into the text since there's been some delay since we've been covering so many other things. Jeremiah 11, 17 through 27, this is the context they want us to have according to the Explore the Bible personal study guide for summer 2023. And I'm going to just read it word for word because it at least provides some of this context. And here's how they begin. The Lord reminded his people of the covenant he made with their ancestors when he delivered them from Egypt. And you supposedly can see that in Jeremiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. Jeremiah 11, verses 1 through 7, if you'll note the very beginning of it, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Hear ye the words of this And speak unto the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
So according to them, the Lord reminded his people of the covenant he made with their ancestors when he delivered them from Egypt. That's Jeremiah 11, 1 through 7. Sadly, their ancestors' disobedience brought God's judgment. Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 8. Jeremiah uh, chapter 11, verse 8. We read these words. Yet they obeyed not, nor inclined their ear, but walked every one in the imagination of their evil heart. Therefore I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did them not. Now once again, this sets up the theme that we've been talking about over and over and over throughout the book of Jeremiah. In fact, the entire story of the Old Testament is sin and failure, sin and failure, sin and failure, sin and failure, because they can't keep it, the law, they can't keep the covenant that was made, they can't do anything that God asked them to do, and if you look to the New Testament, the New Testament church constantly in sin and failing as well, so everyone fails, everyone falls short of God's law, so the only hope then is not law, the only hope then is uh, God's grace and mercy, all right? They go on to say, Jeremiah's generation was repeating their ancestors' sins And God warned judgment would come again. That's in chapter 11, verses 9 through 13. Chapter 11, verses 9 through 13, we read, And the Lord said unto me, A conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers. So the people, even though the previous generation sinned, the current generation is sinning, and of course all future generations are going to sin because sin is the normal, everyday action of the people, all right? Then the next uh, paragraph reads like this. Jeremiah struggled as he saw wicked people prosper. Jeremiah struggled as he saw wicked people prosper. He called on the Lord to bring them down. So Jeremiah struggled as he saw the wicked people prosper. He called on the Lord to bring them down. Now, that's going to be in chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, which we haven't covered yet, so we will. I just want to, so we're not going to read that right now. Well, actually, we'll just read it. We'll just read it because it will provide us some context. So, the people had sinned, the people are sinning, uh, the people will continue to sin. That's just the way it had worked, and that's the way it will always work. Jeremiah struggled as he saw the wicked people prosper, and he called on the Lord to bring them down. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, we'll read that. Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? All right, so we'll read that one more time. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? So Jeremiah struggled because he's seeing that, hey, Lord, you may, you may be righteous, but why are the wicked prospering? And so he is struggling. God was about to hand the Judeans over to their enemies And they would experience devastation. We see that in chapter 12, starting in verses 5 through 13, where we read these words. If thou hast run with the footmen, and they have wearied thee, then how canst thou contend with horses? And if in the land of peace, wherein thou trustest, 
Thou wearyest thee, then wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan. For even thy brethren and the house of thy father, even they have dealt treacherously with thee, yea, they have called a multitude after thee. Believe them not, though they speak fair words unto thee. Then starting in verse uh, 7, he goes on to say, I have forsaken my house, I have left mine heritage, I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of their enemies. So while Jeremiah is struggling, God was about to hand the Judeans over to their enemies and they would experience devastation. And he goes through beginning to talk about some of the devastation that would occur, starting in verse 9. Mine heritage is unto me as a speckled bird. The birds round about are against her. Come ye, assemble all the beasts of the field. Come to devour. My pastors have destroyed my vineyard. They have trodden my portion underfoot. They have made my a pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it desolate, and being desolate, it mourneth unto me. The whole land is made desolate, because no man layeth it to heart. So, so God begins to explain that he's going to hand the Judeans over to their enemies, and they're going to be devastated. Nevertheless, he held out the hope of restoration, and we see that in chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. 14 through 17, we read these words, Thus saith the Lord against all mine evil neighbors that touch the inheritance which I have caused my people, Israel, to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. Now, this is a common theme in the Old Testament, which causes much debate among those who study eschatology. When God begins to make these promises to Israel, Hey, you're going to be devastated. You're going to be destroyed. Everyone typically interprets that in a literal way. But then when it comes to the promise to pluck them out from amongst these nations and restore them, what typically happens is many will then interpret that not literally but figuratively and then apply that to the church. doesn't make a lot of sense. So we interpret that in a literal way that after this judgment, after this devastation, in some way, shape, or form, there will come a future time where Judah and Israel will be restored and they will be put back in their land. This may be not as explicit, but we still have some of the language here in verses 14 through 17. We'll read it again. Thus saith the Lord against all mine evil neighbors that toucheth the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them out of their land, pluck out the house of Judah from among them, and it shall come to pass, after I have plucked them out, I will return and have compassion on them and will bring them again, every man to his heritage and every man to his land. There's the land promise that's been given to Israel over and over and over in the Old Testament. They've never, even if you say they got the land when they came out of Egypt into the land and they got it then, they did not keep it. And then when you get to Jeremiah, you have the promises of the land again, which they never got the land again when you're, uh, from the time of Jeremiah moving forward. They still don't have the land. So either you have to make that figurative or you have to look for a future fulfillment. Verse 16, And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people, to swear by my name, the Lord liveth as they taught my people to swear by Baal, thou shall be built in the midst of my people. Then shall they be built in the midst of my people. But if they will not obey I will utterly pluck up and destroy the nation, saith the Lord. Then there is the promise of judgment if they don't obey, which is the constant theme of law. You must obey or you'll be destroyed. They never do. 
Therefore, they have to rely on something other than obedience. They have to rely on God's mercy, right? Then in chapter 13, and that's where we'll stop this review because we don't really, I wanted to review everything from 13 to 17, but that will kind of mess up the flow for this morning. That gets us all the way through 11, briefly through 12, and then now what we'll do is we'll go back and work through 12 in a more systematic way so that in the next hour, we can work in chapter 13 because chapter 13 is all difficult to understand. So we'll work on Jeremiah chapter 12, all right? So there's kind of a review. Just briefly put, the people of Israel had sinned in the past. They were sinning in the present. Jeremiah struggled because he couldn't understand why the wicked was prospering. God tells him that the Judeans are going to be handed over to their enemies. However, there would be hope of restoration if his people returned to him, almost implying that the restoration was dependent upon their obedience, and maybe to some level it was, but that does not negate God's ultimate promise that he will fulfill irregardless of their obedience because of his mercy and grace. And we read that when we get to later in Jeremiah, when we get to the promise of the new covenant. So chapter 12 is what we need to try to accomplish. So we're going to do this a couple of ways, all right? First, we're going to look at how one book tries to outline the chapter. We'll see if we agree or disagree with this outline, and then we'll try to put this together. So in chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, we find ourselves with, well, as one commentary puts it, perplexity. There's something here that is confusing, difficult for Jeremiah to understand, and we probably can relate to some level, probably depending on how we look at it. Even if we can't relate, there's plenty of people who will ask this kind of question, all right? So Jeremiah chapter 12, starting in verse 1, all right? Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee. So Jeremiah begins with confessing that God is righteous. God is holy. He, he seems to confess that. But then the very next word is yet. Let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Jeremiah is perplexed. He is confused because he doesn't understand why the wicked is prospering. He asked this, but he's not the only person to ask this. Job asked this. There's, in Psalm 73, the same question is raised, but by, it's been raised by many believers throughout history. Why do the wicked seem to prosper? Why do the wicked seem to prosper? Why is, does the wicked seem to prosper? In fact, Jeremiah seems to go on in verse 2. Thou hast planted them, yea, they have taken root. They grow, yea, they bring forth fruit. Thou art near in their mouth and far from their reins. But thou, O Lord, knowest me, thou hast seen me, tried mine heart toward thee, pulled them out like sheep for the slaughter, and prepared them for the day of slaughter. How long shall the land mourn, and the herbs of every field wither? For the wickedness of them that dwell therein, the beasts are consumed, and the birds, because they said, he shall not see our last end. So Jeremiah doesn't understand, I mean, he's literally claiming that God is right there with the wicked. Almost, he's planted them, they've taken root, they grow, they bring forth fruit. He's, he's literally 
assigning God like, hey, you've been doing all this for all of them. Why? How come? Now, we can look at this in a couple of ways. We can look at this as either Jeremiah is very upset and bothered, and so he's bringing forth a almost like a derogatory claim, or we can see it as he's just being open and honest. He's just looking at the reality of the situation, and the reality of the situation is, hey, God, um, what's going on here? Why are they prospering? And then he's almost, in a sense, saying, hey, I've, I've been righteous. They haven't been righteous. I'm suffering. They're not suffering. And he, I mean, you know, let's be honest. He's wanting them to suffer. I mean, there's no way to get around it. He's wanting them to suffer. Look at verse 3. I mean, pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. I mean, he, 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 he's, he's not like, I don't know. Sometimes when we read the words of Jeremiah or the psalmist, we got to be careful because sometimes they're just expressing human emotion and we can judge it. Like in some ways, if it's the good, if it's the good guy in the Bible, we always assign their actions as being good or wonderful or godly. And if it's someone bad in the Bible, then we will immediately assume that their actions are all bad. But in this case, I think Jeremiah is, I think it's more just showing human emotion He's trying to minister to all of these people. They're, they hate him. He's being threatened. And he's probably saying, "Why, God, you could take care of the situation in like two seconds. You could just take care of the situation. I don't know. There, the, there's never an easy answer for why God. I mean, if you look at this from a philosophical standpoint, there's a lot of problems here. Because, and we've talked about this. If our theology says God is the one who changes the heart, then all of the condition of Israel and Judah would be God's fault because he hadn't changed their heart. If you say it's not God who changes the heart, then you say it's the people's fault, and then it's up to their free will to be able to choose to come back to God. The only problem with that is for them to have free will, then you would have to eradicate human depravity. So that causes theological problems. All I know is we can say this. God clearly condemns the sins within Judah and Israel. There's no question about that. That's clear. Clearly, the people continue to disobey over and over and over and over and over. And Jeremiah has reached the end of his patience a little bit here. He, he's tired of it. He's fed up with it. And he wants them to be destroyed. And you can't probably blame him from one perspective. I think... The, the text does not provide us an answer to this issue. I think uh, one study guide, they say something along these lines, if I can find it. They say something along this line. Jeremiah raised a question to God that has perplexed a multitude of people throughout history. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Jeremiah asserted that God is righteous to communicate to communicate uh, that, he, that he was not questioning God's integrity, but asking the question. So they want to try to say, Jeremiah is not questioning God's, uh, he's just kind of more asking a question to why. He's not questioning God's goodness. All right, they're trying to make Jeremiah look good here. I don't know if we really need to do that. They go on to say, Jeremiah was saying, God, I know you're always right, and that you always do what is right, but I still have an issue with how you are dealing with this particular matter. Given that God is righteous, that he has the power to bring judgment and that he had sent Jeremiah to pronounce his judgment on the wicked, why didn't, didn't God just go ahead and get on with it? How could the Lord allow them to continue to prosper and live at 
ease. Jeremiah also questioned why God himself had planted them, allowed them to take root and to grow and produce fruit. These people spoke God's name as if they were devoted to him when in their hearts they did not acknowledge him. Surely God knew their hearts. None of this made sense to Jeremiah. And then they, they move on from there. So they, I don't think the text provides us an answer to this dilemma. People have been asking this. I mean, lost people ask this question. If, there's a, if God is so good, then why are children molested? If God is so good, why are women raped? If God is so good, why is there genocide? If God is so good, why do thousands of people starve to death every single day? People, lost people ask that question. Many in the church don't want to ask that question uh, because in church you're just supposed to just pretend everything is wonderful and great, but it's not. So the question has been asked in the Bible. It's been asked outside the Bible. And at this point, no one has a good answer other than I think all we can say is this. And, and it's, not, it's not an easy answer. On one hand, at least when it comes to Jeremiah's specific question. When we look and say, why are the unrighteous prospering? Why are the ungodly prospering? I think the first thing we have, to, uh, we have to do first and foremost is when we start referring to the ungodly and why they're prospering, we would have to include ourselves in that group because we are just as ungodly as the ungodly. We may not be committing the same external sins, but we have the same depravity inside of us and we're still guilty before God in thought, word, and deed by what we do and what we leave undone. So it's because we're just as guilty as everyone else, it's kind of hard for me to go, God, why are you prospering them? Because I could be asking, why is God prospering me? So the answer is, why would God prosper them? And why would God prosper me? Is we refer to that as common grace. We refer to that theologically as God has mercy on the just and the unjust. He causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. So that, that, that at least provides that. I mean, I know it's not a satisfying answer, because if you see someone commit some horrible crime, you're like, why are they prospering? Yeah, because that's a horrible crime. But from a theological perspective, your sins are just as egregious to God as their sins. From a human perspective, theirs may be worse. You have to see yourself first. And we're, we're not good at seeing our own sins. We're good at seeing everyone else's sins. If we see our own and we're really broken over our own, then I, I think the issue would not be, God, why are you prospering them? We, the question we would probably ask is, why are you prospering me in any way, shape, or form? Why am I even breathing from a, from a theological standpoint? So that, that doesn't answer everything, but that at least changes that perspective, right? For any ungodly person that you're bothered by because they're prospering, you, you, you just need to focus on your own ungodliness and then realize, well, wait a minute, why did God sh- show me any mercy or anything. And then God does show common mercy and grace to everyone to some level, not, not the same way, but at least in some way, shape, or form, because we're breathing and we're alive. Uh, but so that, that, that helps a little bit. Now, as far as how God works things out sovereignly throughout the planet and how things happen and fall and how it works, nobody can understand that. There's just Look, if I, if I was in charge, it would be different. But I'm not. 
But I may think it would be different, but if I was in charge, it could possibly be worse, right? Because, I mean, who knows what I would do? So we always think that we want God's job and tell God how to work things. Yes, I, if it was up to me, God would remove this kind of problem and this kind of problem and all the wonderful things, but it doesn't. And so I, I wish there was an easy answer. All I can say is, for this particular problem, seeing the righteous prosper, the unrighteous prosper, I should say, we have to ask ourselves, who then is righteous? And the, question, and the answer is, nobody. So then nobody should prosper. And why does anyone prosper? It's either God, we could say it this way, God's common mercy or God's saving mercy. Right? It's either God's it's common grace or specific grace, saving grace. It, you could say it's common grace or electing grace. Either way, it's because of God's grace. It's because of God's mercy. Why anyone prospers, why anyone gets anything. Now, we got to be careful not to become so jaded that when people suffer in the world, we're like, well, everyone deserves judgment. So they get it. That's, that's not a good way of thinking. We should be broken by it, and I think we should struggle with it. I, I, I don't think anyone should just be like, hey, you know, people suffer. It's all good. I think we should be bothered with it, and I think anyone who has a faith worth having is going to struggle and going to question and going to be bothered by a whole bunch of this, at least in my estimation, all right? Now, so those are verse 1 and 2. Let's read it again, all right? We try to, we're going to try to get down all the way to 4. All right, so righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Right, so why are they happy that deal treacherously? How come anything's going well for them? Thou hast planted them, they, they have taken root, they grow, yet they bring forth fruit. Thou art near and their mouth and far from their reins. And I think verse, to me, verse 2 may be more problematic than the question. Everyone focuses on the question, hey, why do the wicked prosper? Verse 2 may be even more troubling because in verse 2, Jeremiah is clearly affirming that who's in charge? God's in charge. That... They, the, the, the wicked are not just prospering. God is directly involved in their prospering. He planted them. He's the one doing it. And I don't know how you process that when you look at the news or look at life and you look at a situation over there and you're like, that's, that's horrible because what we want to typically do is anything that's kind of looks bad, we want to remove God from it. We're like we got to protect, we got to come in like we are the protection mob and we're going to protect God from looking bad but <laughs> that puts God directly involved in the situation that puts God directly involved so either Jeremiah is wrong which we don't believe Jeremiah seems to really understand God is the one in char- literally God is the one in charge here and God is the one leading this to happen that I Mm. verse 2, we could spend a couple years. I don't know if anyone has a good answer with verse 2. I think we would have to say theologically, God is sovereignly involved in whatever happens. But there's, that's, that's so problematic. 
that's so problematic in some ways because we, we know philologically we can't put God as... Philologically, we say we can't do what? We can't make God the author of sin. So if we can't make God the author of sin, the confessions, London, Baptist, Westminster, they come along and then they say God uses secondary causes, right? That gets God off the hook. But if God's using the secondary cause, God's still the one directing the ship. He's the one driving it. So if God is sovereignly involved in the wicked and they're prospering, you say, well, they may, he may not be directly involved in their wickedness, but it would be creating a situation where their wickedness can flourish and they can prosper and they can continue to do the wickedness. Then you almost have to ask yourself, when it comes to people's sin or failure, is God involved in that sin and failure in some way, shape, or form? Because he doesn't do anything to prevent it. In some cases, he may even allow a circumstance that he knows is going to lead to it. You just got to be very careful because on one hand, someone could be like, it's God's fault. It's not my fault. And we know scripture doesn't allow that. At the same time, we need to have a theology that says, even within failure, even within horrible things, God may have a plan in it and through it to accomplish something. Because if you think about it, from the very, from the very beginning, I mean, God's the one who created Satan. He knew Satan was going to fall. Satan falls. He doesn't destroy him. Not only does he not destroy him, he allows him to come into the garden knowing exactly what's going to happen. And then when Adam and Eve sinned, he could have stopped everything there, but he doesn't. He then allows people to continue to be born knowing they're going to be born with a sinful nature. So then at that point, since God knew what was going to happen before he started it, sin has to be somehow a part of the plan. And if sin is a part of the plan, then our, sometimes our theology doesn't seem to acknowledge how God could possibly use sin like we only say we just have to condemn it and we must condemn it but we don't seem to have any ability to say well maybe god could work through this now we have to find a way to in a sense redeem the situation not just celebrate the sin or live in it but maybe god is at work in it and so there's no easy answers but i mean literally jeremiah says god look i mean look how it reads Thou, that's God. God, you planted them. The them is the unrighteous. Yea, they have taken root. They grow. Yea, they bring forth fruit. Thou art near in their mouth and far from their reins. So God is directly involved in at least some way, shape, or form. And it's really, and if God, and, and it's kind of weird, if he's near their mouth, then why is he far from their reins? The reins typically is what you use to do what? To pull or control. So it's almost like, hey, I've prospered, prospered them, but what is he not doing? It's not controlling. So it's like, well, that's, like, could you grab the reins? Right? I mean, that seems, that seems like an, an odd way of... Uh, I was going to read it from a different translation really quick because I'm just curious how the other translations. That verse, we could spend a couple of years trying to figure it out. I'm going to look at verse 2. This translation, you planted them, they have taken root, they have grown and produced fruit. You are on their lips, but far from their conscience. Well, if he's far from their conscience, what could God do? 
He could place himself in their conscience and then try to do what? In a sense, I, I like the King James. He could grab onto the reins and control the situation, but he's not. He's only pro- he's basically prospered them, planted them, and then did what? Go. Go do what you want to do. And Jeremiah's like, could you do something about it, please? Then verse 3, but thou, O Lord, knowest me. Thou hast seen me and tried mine heart toward thee. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. I mean, look, there's no way to get around it. He's asking God to do what to him? Yeah, I mean, slaughter is a pretty strong word. It sounds like he's asking God to kill them, which is really strong. You see, this translation says, uh, drag the wicked away like sleep, uh, like sheep to the slaughter, set them apart for the day of killing. That's like really strong, strong emotion, which again, I think the only good thing is it does allow the reality that not only does Jeremiah do this, not only does Job do this, there's others in the Bible that we should be willing to express an emotion no matter how strong it may be to God. Doesn't mean the, emo- it does, the text is not doing what? It's not saying that the emotion is good. It's not saying the emotion is bad. It's simply describing. It's just describing the reality of his emotions. And then verse 4, How long shall the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? For the wickedness of them that dwell therein, the beasts are consumed and the birds because they said he shall not see our last end. What is he asking in verse four? I think what he's asking in verse four is why is everyone suffering? If if you're punishing the land for their disobedience, why would that happen? Because who else is suffering? Anybody who's not involved in their sin is still suffering because... The land. So, so Jeremiah seems to be somewhat bothered by that and, and, and at least somewhat concerned there. All right. And then um, that was verse four. Yes. The, uh, this, I'll just read one commentary here. It seems Jeremiah thought that if the Lord would not respond to what the wicked had done to him, then perhaps he would act against them for their deeds had caused to happen to the land. Apparently, God was using drought and crop failure to get the attention of the people so they would repent. Still, Jeremiah did not understand why crops in nature had to suffer when God could go ahead and judge the wicked and be done with it. Furthermore, it upset Jeremiah that the people appeared to deny that he was a true prophet from God as they ignored the pronouncements of judgment. So he's, he's, he's just bothered by the entire situation, by the entire situation. So I, I don't have any easy answers for Jeremiah 12, 1 through 4. I don't. I mean, I don't. So I, I think, uh, let's do the, uh, I mean, we've only got a couple, but we don't have about 15 minutes left. I don't think there's no way we're going to make it through all of this. Maybe we can. Um, I'm just going to focus on 1 through 4 because that's where all the problems are. So, Let's try to just break this down, all right? So if we were to try to, I want to break down the whole chapter, but at least these four verses, we can at least try to take something from these four verses and then build on it maybe later or podcast or something. All right, so if we look at this, Jeremiah does what in chapter 12, verse 1? He declares God is righteous. Okay, I think that's clear. So what does Jeremiah, in a roundabout way, I think this is important. 
What is Jeremiah? And in the very first words, Jeremiah is doing something I think very important theologically or for any Christian. Okay, so let's let's consider this. We live in a world that we can look at the world and do we see pain, suffering? I mean, we see horrible, horrible, horrible things happen every single day. And you can look at that and there's no question about it. That's going to, it should bother you and it should, and those questions and struggles should be in the church, just not outside the church. It shouldn't be atheist and agnostic asking these questions. It should be in the church and our little pat answers and cliches never satisfy anyone other than people inside the church who are like, yeah, give me, give me a simple answer. But outside the church, it doesn't always work. But what does Jeremiah do here? I think is very important theologically. He starts with the true character of God, irregardless of the circumstance. So we can never define God on circumstances. We define God, we'll use the term revelation, and I'm meaning revelation that what is revealed in Scripture, right? So Scripture reveals the character of God. What doesn't reveal the character of God? Circumstances. I know that's hard. Okay, I know that's hard because we have a tendency to define God based on circumstances, right? And, and, and I'm not trying to make it light of it, right? I can look back to my own past and all the horrible things that happened to me being abused and all the horrible things. And I could say, well, I could question God's character based off what happened to me. But if we believe scripture is true, then God's character is defined by revelation, not circumstances. So he starts, but at the same time, Jeremiah doesn't do what? Deny the reality of the circumstances. I think that's sometimes where the church messes up, right? So number one, Jeremiah begins with the character of God as defined by revelation, not circumstances. Number two, Jeremiah doesn't ignore the circumstances. He doesn't deny the circumstances. So many times Christians have to, you know, just when I like everything's good, everything's wonderful, everything's great. It's not. So we can say God is righteous, and at the same time we can say, and people, I don't understand all the pain and suffering that happens in life. Because look what he says. Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Or as a different translation, I'll just read it because I think I like the way they word it. You will bring, you will be righteous, Lord, even if I bring a case against you. Yes, yet I wish to contend with you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the treacherous live at ease? So I I think we got two very important points. Number one, Jeremiah begins with the truth of God or or the character of God as defined by revelation, not circumstances. Number two, Jeremiah is willing to acknowledge the reality of the circumstances. And whenever we look at the revelation of God, or we, whenever we look at the character of God as defined by revelation and not circumstances, and we look at those circumstances, what will we always find? We're going to find conflict. We're always going to find conflict. Because do circumstances ever seem to reflect the true character of God? Absolutely not. So we're always going to find that's the, that's the whole struggle of faith. And again, a faith that doesn't question this, a faith that doesn't doubt this, a faith that doesn't struggle with this is not really faith. It's just someone accepting some simple answers to complex questions. 
It's just someone who you know, believes a bumper sticker. That's, that, that's not what Christianity should be. We should be real people of faith who are willing to struggle with this. Yes, we, what can we say? God is righteous. Why do we say that? Revelation. And sometimes what we find ourselves, if someone asks us these d- deep questions, we start trying to find all of these explanations to say, no, 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 God is still righteous. No, God is still loving. And none of those answers work because we don't have answers to answer those kinds of questions because our belief about God is not determined by circumstances. So all we can say to someone is, look, I understand the circumstances don't make any sense, but my belief about God is not based off the circumstances. It's based off the revelation. However, number two, I'm willing to acknowledge to you It's messed up and it makes no sense. I don't get it. I don't understand why that child was abused or that or genocide happened or six million Jews were wiped out in World War II or things going on in Ukraine right now with Russia. I I don't like I don't understand what is going on in Africa or the Sudan or wherever the next big issue is. I will never understand. Over 100 people have died just of the heat wave this summer. Like, I don't understand those things. So the, that, I think that's the conflict. But we have to, to realize, my, my, we, we start with the character of God as defined by revelation, not circumstance. But we do not do what? Deny the circumstance. We do not deny the circumstance. Is that, I, does, does that make sense? And then I think the next thing we could write down is we cannot deny God's sovereignty in everything. We cannot deny God's sovereignty in everything. That's, that's verse 2, which is just, that verse 2 may be more disturbing than all the rest. Because Jeremiah is acknowledging God is the one who planted the unrighteous. He's the one doing all of these things. Right? We cannot deny God's sovereignty in it. Is that going to always... Is, look, does that give us any easy answers? No, it may actually make the answers more complicated. But it makes us always have to stop when a circumstance happens. I don't care what it is. Good, bad, sin. What, I think we always have to stop and go, okay, the sin is wrong. But if God's sovereignly involved, he's involved in this in some way, shape, or form. So how can we then find a way to get the good from the situation. I'm not saying excuse it, but we somehow, God is in it. I mean, we just can't remove God. We almost want to remove God from some circumstances. And I don't know, we may never understand why, why God does certain things. Like, I don't understand. When, when Sarah, when Abram's like, she's not my wife, and she gets taken by the men, God steps in and protects her. When David commits adultery, God doesn't even bother to show up. When Abram's using Hagar in a horrible way that is basically sexual assault, God doesn't show up. So you're like, well, why would he show up in this situation and not this situation? And guess what the answer is? I have no clue. Okay? I have no, I, nobody knows. All right? Nobody knows. So number one, we start with God's character is defined by revelation, not circumstances. However, we do not Deny the circumstances. Number three, we have to see somehow God is sovereign in all of it. And I don't understand how that works. Do you? 
I mean, if you do that, write a book and you can be rich because people have been asking these questions for forever. I mean, I, I wish I knew it. Correct? Right. Next, I think this. I love this last part of verse 3. He says, but thou, O Lord, knowest me. Thou hast seen me and tried my heart towards thee. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. I think, I think the next point here, we got to be honest with our emotions about it. There's no, there's no need to put on the little Sunday mask and go, God is good and God is good all the time and all the little things that Christians love to say. Sometimes, you know what we can say? I don't understand. It makes me angry. Why would God not do this? Why would God, why would not God stop this situation? Why would God not do this or do that? Be honest. Honesty. But why do, look, if, if you're not going to be honest, there's no, you're not, can't, you can't grow in your faith. I think to me, a lack of those honest questions stifles spiritual growth. Right? Sometimes, sometimes I think young children are, are, are more mature than adults because young children like to do what? What kind of question do they ask? Why, 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 why? And those asking the why questions do what? It leads to their growth, yes? And then we get older and then we stop doing what? Asking why. Especially in the church. You're not supposed to ask Why? You're just supposed to do what? They always say you're just supposed to have faith. Having faith doesn't remove the why. In fact, the stronger the faith, the more wise. The weaker the faith, the less wise. You know why? Because a weak faith can't handle the wise. Weak faith can't handle it. They get nervous, they get upset. And you can see that with some Christians. You bring up some of these issues and they will almost like, they get defensive and they'll like, no, you can't say, whoa, calm down, calm down. We're dealing with the reality. So what was number one? We have to start with God's character according to revelation, not circumstance. But number two, don't ignore the reality. Number three, we have to see God's sovereignty in it. Number four, we gotta be honest with our, Emotions and feelings. We've got to be honest with our feelings. We have to. All right? And then I'm just going to do one more. And I know this is not necessarily in the text, but I kind of made a a reference to it. I think we have to, uh, I think the next one would be, we've got to see our own unrighteousness. We've got to see our own unrighteousness because if we don't, we'll always be wondering why God is doing this in their life and their life and their life. And we're like, they don't deserve it, but what do you deserve? Like from a theological perspective, what do I deserve? To be in hell and not to be breathing, okay, right? From a theological perspective, I don't deserve to be alive. So if I can see that, then I'm less worried about God uh, blessing them and I'm more grateful for the fact that God is blessing me. And guess what? You know what we, I know this is hard for us to do. Even if it's someone should we not be grateful that God would show common grace and and mercy to everyone because he has showed common mercy to me, right? Now that's not perfect. That's not great, but um, that's the way it works. And so for those listening online, apologize if it didn't start off so smoothly. First time I've ever spoken in a place where there was only one person present (laughs) But 
That's the way this morning worked. We still, we will come back to some of these things. Um, I'm going to take those points that I made and we'll work on them a little bit more. And now people are pulling up. Yeah, no, so, yeah, yeah you're, you're an hour late. Okay, all right. But, but I'm grateful, grateful, right, that um, we at least made it, we didn't make it through chapter 12, but we at least looked at some very important points. And so, well, we, we, what we may do is we may skip the rest of 12 and we'll just do a, we'll read a review of it. And then we're in the next hour, we're going to work on 13, which is where it's going to get all interesting. All right. So that's what we'll do. But those, those uh, four verses is the verses that cause all the problems, raise all the questions. Um, and uh, hopefully we, we at least try to accomplish something there. All right. So let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, in spite of circumstances, help us always be grateful and hold on to the truth of you as revealed according to your word and not according to our feelings or to circumstances. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,